This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today looks at Jesus' time with Pilate before being sent to death, found in Matthew 27, 11-26. Together, we will be discussing listening for the Spirit's voice, even in unlikely places, as we follow obediently after Jesus. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. And I'm Natasha. And we are half of the usual group that you hear for the Living Vertizontal podcast. And uh, I'll own that one. Uh, Unfortunately, this last week I came down with COVID. And so out of abundance of caution, we are doing this a little bit differently uh, this week. So you're going to hear from Natasha and I throughout this episode. Um, And hopefully next week, if there are some things that we missed... um, We'll be able to have Derek and Brittany back with us, and they'll be able to share some some thoughts there. So it's possible that next week's episode is going to potentially look at two uh, two passages. Um, but this week, um, Natasha and I are going to spend some time uh, talking about Matthew chapter twenty seven verses eleven through twenty six. Uh, as a quick reminder, last week we focused on the accounts of remorse felt by both Peter and Judas. Uh, following their betrayals of Jesus, found in Matthew twenty six sixty nine through chapter twenty seven ten, uh, with these accounts we ultimately discussed our role in reconciling the world to God. So this week, as I've already mentioned, we're going to be moving on to Matthew twenty seven verses eleven through twenty six, and specifically in this passage, we're going to be looking at where Jesus stands before Pilate, uh, the Roman official. Uh, who actually has the power to order Jesus' death or freedom. And uh, since it's not what it usually is, and Derek and Brittany are not with us, uh, I am going to be reading our passage for today. Uh, So I'm going to read Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of selfish interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered. Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw 
that he was getting nowhere. But that instead, an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. All right. So with that being our passage, uh, let's just start like we usually do, even though there's only two of us, and just kick it off. What are we seeing? What's sticking out to us? So one of the first things I think I'm drawn to again, and I know we talked about this last week as well, or in the previous weeks at least, was Jesus's response to these condemnations. So he's brought before the governor and he stands there and they just levy accusation after accusation after accusation. This by they, I mean the chief priests and the elders. And as these these accusations come, Jesus just stands silent. And and here in the Gospel of Matthew, it says he his silence was to the great amazement of the governor. Right. And that in verse 14. And so I just think Pilate himself would not have been, I mean, he would have been aware of Jewish beliefs and customs to some some extent, but he himself would not have necessarily call, considered himself a practicing Jew. And so as a result of that, I feel like he, there's there's this separation and this distance, and so there's there's some witnessing happening here in his amazement. And through his amazement, he's seeing Jesus behave in a way that's contrary to culture, which is kind of what Jesus has been all about for the duration of his ministry. And so I think that fact alone deserves our attention again, just in the face of criticism, in the face of really unmerited accusation. Jesus remains silent. He says nothing apart from what his father would have him say. He knows his father's will. He spent the time in the in the Garden of Gethsemane with his father, and so he knows where this ends. And so there's no point for him to advocate on his behalf. There's no point for him to defend himself. There's no point for him to call down curses or insults on these people who are standing before him accusing him who he's about to die to save. There's just no reason to it. And he he has such resolve and such confidence in his father's will that he's able to stand there in silence. And I just think that's remarkable. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll say to that point, um, when I was reading it, um, I had a similar thought, but then I was taken back initially because Jesus does initially make a statement. He says, you have said so. Like Pilate asks a question, are you uh, the king of the Jews? And he says, you have said so. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe Jesus is going to mount a little bit of a defense here. Right. But instead, it's not really, I, I don't think that answer is an answer for the purpose of defense. I think that answer is an answer for the purpose of, like you said, like Pilate. It's maybe, for Pilate. Yeah, maybe he knows, maybe he doesn't. We're not necessarily sure where he stands in in his understanding and knowledge of the Messiah and of um, who Jesus is professing to be or who the relig- religious leaders are accusing Jesus to have been professing to be. Um, so in this moment, it's like, 
Pilate asks a genuine question. He's not even addressing necessarily the accusations yet. That's going to come next. He's just asking a question. So are you the king of the Jews? And and Jesus, I would say even potentially in a in a posture of respect, says, well, you've said that it's so. Like, you've said it. In other words, yeah. Like, he, he gr- responds in this affirmative way, and now it is with this affirmation that we move forward into this trial that Pilate is, is responsible for overseeing and responsible for giving a, a judgment on by the conclusion of it. It's with this understanding of Jesus is the king of the Jews that he now moves forward into this conversation, um, bringing in the testimony of the, of the religious leaders of Israel and trying to ask Jesus, although now, like you pointed out, Jesus doesn't defend himself uh, because now, now the answer is out there. So now it's as the king of the Jews, this is how I act. This is, this is who I am. I don't have to fight for myself. And, and so it's almost like, so now Jesus in front of Pilate has established who he is. And so now he's going to show him what it looks like to be who he is. And we don't follow this story with Pilate up much past this point, but I can't help but wonder how this impacts him and stays with him as he goes forward in his service sure. um, in this region because to stand amazed by the criminals brought before you on trial, I feel like that's going to hold a unique place in his mind uh, for the long term. And especially coupled with his wife's statement, which we'll get to in just a moment, um, I think he can't help but dismiss the possibility of the truth that Jesus has just affirmed that he is the king of the the Jews, even though Pilate may not understand what all of that carries or means. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think just the next few verses after that, after the statement of his amazement, uh, would indicate to us that there is something, um, I don't know if it's switched, because again, we don't know necessarily where he started in this conversation, but there is something that um, influences how he's going to try to go forward. And like you said, we don't know how that necessarily impacts beyond the trial, but just immediately in this trial, like you see his mindset turn to instead of, okay, I just need to hear the accusations. We need to bring witnesses. We need to, we need to condemn this man or set him free. It's like, I'm not even necessarily worried any longer about the order of operations as it pertains to the, um, judicial process here, it's almost like he sees his innocence because the next statement is talking about the festival and talking about how the the custom of the festival is to let somebody go. And the only other person to let go is this revolutionary that has caused problems that um, ultimately is somebody who, um, if you were a Jewish individual, this is the type of person you would want locked up because this is the type of person who would cause the full weight of the Roman empire to be poured out on you if they weren't prevented from doing what they were trying to do. And so Pilate having this solution that he feels like is, this is a fail safe. Like this is going to work. Right. There's no, there's nothing there. There's surely they're not going to choose the release of Barabbas over this 
very innocent man. Um, but it also acknowledges that he, he recognizes they're coming out of their own self-interest. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, yes, they are operating. He recognizes that they are operating out of self-interest by bringing Jesus to him because they, he probably starts to perceive that they view him as a threat to their position. But Pilate being a Roman official recognizes Jesus isn't a threat to who they are as the Jewish people in the empire of Rome, but Barabbas does represent a threat. And so even though both of them, like they, they, they there is, there is self-interest involved with each of these characters. Jesus being brought to to, to Pilate is a movement of self-interest, but Barabbas being retained in custody would also be a movement of greater self-interest because now we're not just talking about positional situations that might exist within the Jewish um, system. Now we're talking about like Rome coming in and completely conquering us because of this crazy guy who won't stop. Well, and let's talk a little bit about Barabbas. So um, Barabbas was involved in essentially creating riots. I mean, he was, he was trying to stage coups to, to usher in this messianic era. He was quotes, right? Right. Messianic Messianic era. And so he is in his own way, attempting to carry out what all Jesus's disciples really thought they were signing up for. Right. Um, they're going to overthrow what the Pharisees are looking for. Exactly. Exactly. And so, um, he, he really was raising a lot of havoc, drawing a lot of attention from from the Roman government, which would have been not good for Pilate, um, sure. showing showing lo- loss of control over his people, but also would have not been good for the Jews themselves because um, their their amount of freedom they're able to enjoy is very contingent upon their cooperativity with what Rome expects of them. And so when they riot and when they act out, then there's going to be a tighter handle on, on what they're allowed to do and what they're allowed to participate in. And so I think it's important to bear that in mind as we talk about Barabbas and who he is and what he represents. Um, he, he is a threat to the present Jewish freedoms that they experience. Um, because one man, while he might start a movement against Rome, is really probably not going to be able to overthrow Rome unless he is the Messiah. And I think people at this point are pretty pretty confident that Barabbas is not, not the, the Messiah. Right. So. right. And so you think about just the two people then. You think about Jesus, you think about Barabbas, and you see some similarities, Right from, from the, but they're from different perspectives. So Jesus represents a threat to the establishment of, of Israel. Barabbas, I guess also represents a threat to the establishment of Israel, but for different reasons, right? Like Barabbas's threat to the establishment only comes because he is like that, that ultimate Jew who is going against the man of Rome. And so his threat to the establishment is a result of Rome's response to who he is and what he is doing. Whereas Jesus's threat to the establishment is Jesus is actually the one who is directly threatening the establishment with, I mean, we've been talking now for almost a year in the podcast and even beyond that before the podcast of all of the teachings that Jesus has been doing all along and every single one of his teachings works to essentially 
from their perspective, undermine the, the structures that are in place for the, for the religious establishment. Um, back in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, he intros the Sermon on the Mount with a statement of, unless you have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, right? Like, and so, so Jesus is in himself, he is the threat to Israel. And so I think that maybe as we look at these two individuals, you know, us looking on the outside, say Israel would be stupid to say we need to release Barabbas and maybe even looking at it like Pilate did, right? So if we're Pilate, we, it would be easy for us to come to that conclusion where we would say, okay, this is a, an easy way to get Jesus out of this because it would be silly for them to let, let Barabbas go because of the threat that he represents. But he's not thinking about the fact that the threat that Jesus has towards the Jews, or at least the Jews in power, is actually greater than the threat that Barabbas represents. Hmm. Yeah, I guess so. When we look at it through through the eyes of the religious, I'll just call them the religious elites, maybe mm-hmm. of of Jesus's day, it does. It becomes the decision does become obvious in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we move forward in this, in this trial, in this process, ultimately these religious officials and they're going to get the crowds in on this as well. Um, everybody is, is shouting for the release of Barabbas uh, as opposed to the release of Jesus, uh, which is contrary to what Pilate had anticipated or expected and contrary to what we would have anticipated or right. expected. Um, but so they get to this place. And when I look at this, I feel like this is a foreshadow of what Jesus's death on the cross that's coming here next week is going to mean for the world. Mm. Um, in this moment, I, I can't help but but jump inside the mind of Barabbas and what Barabbas must have been feeling. Okay, they're sh- shouting and chanting that they want this man to be executed, right? Mm. Uh, that's been kind of the, the theme from the beginning. And if they want him executed and it's me or him, that means I'm going to be executed. Mm. And um, I'm assuming Barabbas probably didn't want to die. And so just the, the fear, um, maybe even if it's masked by this bravery because I'm dying for this noble cause, you know, um, he still is, is sitting looking face to face with death mm-hmm. and then enter this saving, silent, peaceful king who's completely righteous, completely innocent, and takes the place of this man who has committed crimes, who has done rioting, who has been involved in, in the deaths of others. And I, I struggle to see what, or feel, I guess, I don't know. I struggle with what to do with the emotions that I start to feel thinking through the eyes of Barabbas, as I realize that I've been set free Mm. at the expense of this righteous perfect quote king of the Jews 
and it's overwhelming. And as we look forward toward the cross, this is exactly what Jesus then continues to do for each and every one of us. So we can place ourselves in Barabbas's position and we're held up before the judge. And Jesus says with his silence, I'll take his spot. I'll take her spot. I will pay the price for the sin that he or she has committed. And he does that for each one of us. And he does it silently and he does it grace, graciously and he does it lovingly. And as I watch that and I think about how we're supposed to model our lives after Christ's life, then all of a sudden I'm reflecting, okay, well, well, me as Jesus is supposed to stand up and take the place of the unrighteous, of the condemned, of the sinner, of the people who, who f- refuse to acknowledge that God is Lord and that Jesus is King of the Jews. And I'm supposed to take their place mm-hmm. with grace and love and silence. And I think about the people around me who I've not done such a great job loving that I know Jesus would have done more. He would have done better. He would have done bigger. And so as I I wrestle with that tension, I feel like there's a lot of space in my own life. I trust that there's a lot of space probably in all of our lives to be able to grow in this area of being willing to take the place of those that God would deem as unrighteous. As you were saying that, I, the thing that just kept, com- I guess maybe the question that kept coming to my mind was, am I ready and willing to receive the consequences of the actions of others? Like that's what Jesus did. He was ready and willing to receive the consequences of the actions of others. And he didn't fight when that time came. And I don't necessarily know that I have a direct understanding of what this might look like. Um, but well, I think it plays out moment by moment during your day. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Moment by moment. But I, I guess, I guess as I do think about it, there's a few things that I could, I could think of that are really big, but also oddly specific. And so I'm going to leave those things out, um, because I want it, I want us to sit with the question of, so what would it look like for us to be willing to assume the consequences of others? And how do we, how do we be Jesus in those moments? As we ponder what it looks like to assume the consequences of others who, who are not being necessarily, at least from our eyes, obedient Mm -hmm. unto God, I, I feel like we have to go back and we have to address this piece where God is speaking to Pilate's wife. So in verse 19, um, it says, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And I think sometimes 
we struggle today to even acknowledge that Jesus through his spirit is speaking to us continually. Right. He's constantly trying to speak to us about everything, lead us in every moment as much as we're willing to listen. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think rarely do we consider the possibility that Jesus through his spirit actually is speaking to both those trying to follow him and those who do not yet know him. Right. And I think we see that evidenced here in Pilate's wife. Correct. And yep. potentially even in Pilate before this, right? Sure. So this this unsettled feeling that he has with regards to this situation. I feel like that is this we use this big fancy word in the Church of the Nazarene called prevenient grace. But really what we mean by that is God is speaking through his spirit. He's speaking through his yeah. spirit to two people. Mm-hmm. And to people who don't yet know him. And so I sure. think this this passage is just filled with these instances of God's spirit speaking to people who don't know who he is, at least not in in fullness. And and so I feel like this is an important reminder to us as we go about loving people recklessly. Mm-hmm. As we go about taking on the consequences of, quote, the unrighteous, that we've got to believe and we've got to trust that the Spirit is speaking to them just as He's leading and speaking to us. Mm-hmm. And we have to believe that with confidence and know it to be true in our hearts because when, when, when God speaks through His Spirit to us and to others and and all of us listen and obey. That's when we see those big kingdom moments. Yeah, that just they they change. They really do. They change the world. They do. Yep. And so I just I, I think this is a very very important important piece that we can't we can't just skip over uh, sure. here in this story. Yeah, I mean I can think of just examples of this that I have seen throughout um, my time serving in ministry, where. There have been people that I am in a relationship with, like friendship in a friendship with, um, who do not yet know Jesus, do not even profess to follow him or know of him. Like they're just, they're good in their life where they're at. Um, and I've, I've known many different people like this. And, and there's one specific instance that I can think of where there was um, some, some people that I knew that, that had a need. Um, but that need wasn't widely known. Um, and then just out of the blue one day, I'm contacted by one of these people who, who wouldn't consider themselves to be Christian, reached out to me and, and said, Hey, you know, I, um, heard that the, this, this particular family is in need and we would, we would really like to, to help them. We'd like to do what we can. And, as I spoke with the, this individual more, it, it came out that they just, they had a feeling that they should do it. And it's like, God is that feeling like through his spirit, God is speaking to this individual and giving this individual a good idea. I mean, James one seventeen says every good and perfect thing comes from our father in heaven. And I truly believe that this idea was a good and perfect thing. And so God through his spirit, Jesus through his spirit spoke 
into the life of this individual who is not professing to was not professing to follow him. And as a result, they responded and this family that was in need, I mean, there was still need that existed, but there was less need now. And, and this is one of those moments where, like you were saying earlier, Natasha, like when, when everybody is listening to what Jesus is saying through his spirit, you start to see big kingdom moments happen. And I don't know that I, I didn't get to see the fullness of potentially that the kingdom moment that was happening in the life of this individual and in that family that was in need, maybe one day I'll find out, but I truly believe that, that God was doing something huge far bigger than, than either one of those people, because both of them were listening, even though one of them didn't even know that they were listening to God. And so I, I think that we, as a people of, of God need to get used to and be comfortable with this idea that God, like we don't have a corner on the market of God. Like we do not contain him. We are part of his creation. He is not something that we get to like own own. So his word is not something that we own. Like it is very possible and likely. And I'm going to say it is happening that God is speaking to and through others that aren't even trying to follow him. And so we, as the people of God need to start becoming more comfortable with that reality and begin listening for God, even through the mouths of people who aren't even professing to follow him. We really do. It comes back to this conversation about testing everything. Sure. We really 100%. do. We have to test everything and not just the things that are discussed um, in our in our church buildings, uh, not just the things that are discussed around dinner with our Christian friends, but we have to test everything, yep. uh, recognizing that his spirit is working and it, he is speaking. So then with this understanding in mind that God through his spirit does in fact speak to even those who are not following and, and even looking at this passage particular in particular and saying that it's definitely obvious that he was speaking to Pilate's wife and through Pilate's wife to Pilate, but it also seems as though like Pilate was not pursuing Jesus, but Jesus in front of him spoke to him. So God spoke to Pilate. And it, it began to change things within Pilate. So we can say, I would say, that we can come to this conclusion that, that God is speaking. And so with this understanding that God is speaking in the midst of this trial, not Jesus, but God is speaking, we now come to this place where Pilate finds himself in a difficult situation, mm -hmm. right? Um, he has devised in his own mind a way to get Jesus set free. That way fails. The crowds do not ask for Jesus. They ask for Barabbas. He's had, his, he, he's had Jesus say that he is the king of the Jews, and you could tell that that did something in his mind because that's what started him on this trajectory of this idea of how to set him free. You've had his wife come to him and say, have nothing to do with him because I have suffered a great deal as a result of him. And so like, he's got all of this like breaking into him of, okay, I have got to find a way out. And so we see that his like his idea of the way out is to set Barabbas free and then wash his hands of the death of Jesus, right? Well, and he has all of this external pressure as well, Tons I'm sure, because he's 
he's recognizing, goodness, these people are getting louder. There's the, the, we're bordering on a riot here. Yep, and if, if exactly. we have a riot here, then I'm going to be held responsible of the governor of this region. And I really have to get this under control. So really, in order to keep my position and you are in order to preserve my place of influence and power, yep. I'm going to have to dispel any sort of rioting or any sort of, um, disorder that's that seems like it might be breaking out here and so what can i do to escape this this moment so that i can escape with my position my authority my lifestyle all of these things still intact. intact yep exactly exactly because for him to to lose control like not only is he responsible because he's the governor of the area but he's responsible because he was presiding over this trial and it was actually his idea that led to this kind of right. loud situation <laughs> that is bordering on rioting, right? And so the only response that he can think of is this figurative, like, I'm going to wash my hands. So he washes his hands in front of the people of Israel, and he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered affirmatively, you know, his blood is on us and on our children. Like they, they were all too excited to say, you know, sure, that sounds good. But here's the truth. The only person in this trial, according to polity at the time, that had the power to free or execute was one man by the name of Pilate. So even in his figurative washing of his hands and trying to excuse himself of guilt. We know, spoiler alert for those who don't, Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus is executed. Jesus cannot be executed except for the command of one person, and that's Pilate. And so even in the washing of his hands, he still shoulders the guilt and the responsibility associated with the execution of Jesus. And so when I think about this situation, I take a step back and I'm like, man, Pilate had worked himself into an almost impossible position, right? Because for Pilate to respond or to react in a way any differently than he did in this situation would be for him to, to behave far outside of the uh, established norms of the day. It would be for him to behave probably far more like the individual that was being led to the cross, which is a lot to ask of somebody who's just come face to face with him and, and doesn't even really know what he stands for yet. But when I think about it for us, how often do we find ourselves in a situation where we have a choice to make? We can either do what we can to maintain the status quo for ourselves or we can make the hard decision to do what we know is right that might cost far more than we could even imagine. Well, and I think there's also with this, this other point that stands out rather loudly, which is his actions say one thing and his words are saying mm, another. There's true. this element of hypo hypocrisy to what Pilate is doing, right? He he verbally is saying, this is not my responsibility. And he's doing this action of washing his hands, right? But verbally, 
he's declaring this isn't this not my fault. This is your fault. This is on you. Right. But yet his actions at the very end of of verse 26 it says and handed him over to be crucified. He handed him over to be crucified. And that's Pilate. Pilate yeah. ultimately makes this call, makes this decision. He's the only one with the power. And so while his words say one thing, his actions speak loudly and clearly about what is his number one priority, mission, purpose um, for his life. And I think that we it's really easy for us to sit. And once again, just like we pick on poor Peter, it's really easy for us to sit here and pick on Pilate. Sure. Um, and on that note, I mean, Pilate really just did what all the disciples did. <laughs> he turned and ran. He's like, oh, I wash my hands. I'm out of here, right? And so these followers of Jesus behave no differently. And so this is humanity, right? Mm -hmm. This is where we are when we live selfishly and not selflessly for our king. Mm -hmm. And so as we're, you know, picking apart Pilate, I think it's really important for us to take a moment and remember just how like him we tend to be in mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. With our words, we profess that Jesus is Lord, that God is number one in our life, that we have no other idols, that he is supreme. But then our actions speak volumes in a different direction because our lives do not echo what our words say or proclaim. Mm. And this is going to take on a variety of forms. I mean, there's lots of things flashing in my mind of areas in my life where I don't know that I do the best job of always putting God first in each of these areas. And and I'm trying, but I fail so often. And I feel like in that way, I'm a lot like Pilate. I really want, I want to do what's right, but in the moment when I'm faced with this test or this temptation or this challenge, I make a decision that's contrary to what God's design or plan is or what he's been talking to me all along about trying to overcome. And so I think it would be an important, important thing for us to sit and evaluate how, how are we like Pilate in this regard? How do we place other things in our lives ahead of the interests of God. Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about the Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.